Welcome everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to this week's work in progress talk. Uh, this uh, work in progress talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today. Michelle McKinley, the Bernard B. Clicks Professor of Law at the University of Oregon Law School and the former uh, director of uh, the Center for the Study of Women and Society. Professor McKinley attended Harvard Law School where she was executive editor of the Harvard Human Rights Journal. She also holds a master's degree in social anthropology from Oxford University. Professor McKinley has published extensively on public international law, Latin American legal history, and the law of slavery. Her monograph, Fractional Freedoms, Slavery, Intimacy, and Legal Mobilization in Colonial Lima, 1600 to 1700, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Fractional Freedoms received the 2017 Judy Ewell Prize for Best Work in Women's History from the Rocky Mountain Council for Latin American Studies, and an honorary mention for the best work in socio-legal history from the Law and Society Association. Professor McKinley has received fellowships for her research from the American Council of Learned Societies, the National Science Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Philosophical Society, and the Newberry Library. She was awarded the Surrency Prize in 2011 for her article, Fractional Freedoms, Legal Activism and Ecclesiastical Courts in Colonial Lima, 1593 to 1700. In 2014, she was a fellow in residence at Princeton University's program in law and public affairs. Prior to joining the Academy, Professor McKinley was the Managing Director of Cultural Survival, an advocacy and research organization dedicated to indigenous peoples. She is also the founder and former director of the Amazonian People's Resources Initiative, a community-based reproductive rights organization in Peru, where she worked for nine years as an advocate for global health and human rights. Professor McKinley is the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Provost Senior Humanist Research Fellow. Her work in progress talk today is titled, as you see, Bound Biographies, Transoceanic Itineraries, and the Afro-Iberian Diaspora in the Americas. Please join me in welcoming Michelle. It's great to have you, Michelle. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you to everyone at the OHC and to all of the participants who have joined, you know, carving time out of their busy day today uh, to come to this presentation. Um, Paul, Melissa, Gina, Peg, I can't thank you enough for this forum and for the opportunity. Um, generally, you know, the, 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 the senior title tends to you know, make me seem like I should be, you know, much more gray than I am. Uh, but, but that's fine. I, you know, I'm definitely going to embrace it. Um, and, and the idea of being um, the provost senior humanist has a tremendous amount of irony to me. But anyway, uh, we won't go into that. I'm just going to uh, talk today and give you a sense, an overview of the project that I am um, uh, embarking upon. And it is extremely um, uh, significant that I'm doing this at the OHC because this is the first drop of 
bound biographies, right? I told my kids today, I was like, I'm going to drop it like it's, you know, like my hit. Um, so you will be able to tell me if it, you know, sinks or it floats. And I would really like to have that um, feedback uh, as I take this on the road. Um, so without further ado, I'm just going to start because I know that we have a short time and I really, really uh, want to welcome your questions. Um, so as the title, uh, you know, the, the beyond the colon um, suggests, my project is really charting these transoceanic itineraries of uh, free Black people and, 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 and Black people who leave the Iberian Peninsula and go to the Americas um, as migrants or as immigrants or as people who are uh, doing the sort of the work of uh, settlement um, and, you know, really thinking through what that actually means to round out the story of, uh, of, of European migration from a, a, a different perspective, right? So um, my entry point into this, you know, a lot of people sort of use um, in microhistory, social history are using, um, you know, the lives of extremely mobile people to tell stories of empire, to tell stories of, of mobility, to tell stories of enslavement, of commerce. Um, and what I'm doing is a, a version of that. So I'll just sort of get into it. Um, my second slide is uh, a, a license that um, was issued to someone uh, named Catalina Guzman, and I'll, I'll just read it in the English uh, version. Uh, so in 1600, Doña Catalina de Guzman petitioned the House of Trade in Sevilla, which I'm going to um, also call the Casa de la Contratación, uh, for a license to travel to New Spain, which is today's Mexico, for a 30-year-old free Black woman named Agostina. When Agostina testified before the House of Trade Council, she said that she was used to life in the Indies. And she also assured the judges that she had made the Atlantic crossing in the lives of many, in, in the service of many uh, doncella, Spanish ladies, and that she longed to get back to a climate that most suited her. So, you know, when I saw this uh, in the archive, I certainly thought, you know, how do I write this history? How do I write this history of someone who is named Agustina, who's sort of in you know, uh, a license of someone else who's at the same time um, expressing a preference for both travel and relocation and uh, dare we say agency. Um, and so my, my work really takes some, you know, people like Alistina and, and I think through her, through a, a number of uh, frameworks. Should I think about her as a migrant? Um, the history of Iberian uh, immigration to the Americas is certainly not uh, reflected of someone like Agustina's uh, involvement, uh, you know, or, or, or even contemplates the fact that Black people went of their own free will, and I'm always going to put free in um, quotation marks, but, but really the history of, of, of Iberian um, 
migration is about settlement, civilization projects of the Americas, you know, rape, pillage, uh, dispossession. And so the, 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 the work that um, Augustina would have done uh, is very interesting in that context. Um, should I think about her in a gendered framework, right? At this point, it's 1600, the, um, the, the Spanish imperial project is far along its, its uh, stages of you know, conquest, pillage, and they're in the phase of domesticity of, of, uh, and, and women and children certainly perform that work, right? You know, this idea that men are, you know, uh, untethered from Catholic norms, from heteronormativity, you know, consorting with um, indigenous and black women, I mean, just completely destroying the, the, the racial order and the social order. And so women and children, families, households are the big push at this point and, and are performing that domesticating function. How does she fit into that? And then how does she fit into it as a free black woman, right? Her you know, she is identified as a free black woman and she also brings her papers into it, but you always have to think about free black women in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, which is far by far um, uh, the, the, the major um, motor of black mobility to the Americas. And following from her being a free black woman, how do we think about her as a forced settler? Right. This is what Taya Miles sort of talks about in terms of these tense terminologies of, you know, Black people coming to the new world to do the labor of, you know, sort of dispossession of Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, to clear the path for European civilizing projects and, and for productivity. And, you know, where does she fit into that? And for uh, purposes of my uh, my discussion here, I want to how what would it mean to think about her as an Iberian sort of discrepant cosmopolitan, and I'm drawing on the idea of discrepant cosmopolitans both from um, the anthropologist James Clifford and from uh, the historian um, Ira Berlin who really sees these kinds of motions and people in mobility, mobile people who will give us a more multifaceted view of what it would be like to be in, um, you know, in a black person in motion, you know, with the knowledge and the kind of the cultural cachet that comes from exposure to many cultures, many languages. So, so um, you know, what does that mean for her? And how does um, the sort of the passage that she makes to the new world, right? So she's a 30 year old free black woman who says that she has been to uh, Peru and then she, now she's coming back to the peninsula and she wants to go to New Spain as a way of like expressing herself and her preference for getting back to a climate that most suits her. So, uh, you, you know, the idea here is that this is travel. This is a, a, a multifaceted way in which that we, we can approach a historical subject like Augustina. And before, you know, before we move on, we sort of have to figure out how it is that she's being even brought into the historical record. 
So into the historical record, this is of course the Casa de la Contratación. This is uh, the House of Trade in Sevilla. And you know, I think all the time about what it would be like for a uh, you know, 30 year old free black woman to go into this place. This is the House of Trade that was established in 1502 that authorized all travel, all commerce, all of the, the, um, the crown's interest and um, business in the Indies, in the Americas. And it all happens here, right? It's a very powerful place. It is a very powerful place at this time. Now, of course, her interview in front of the people who are interviewing her probably took place in a much more modest uh, uh, place, like, um, you know, one of these, lesser uh, bureaucratic um, uh, entities, but nonetheless, um, you know, she still had to go in front of a, a series of, of people to justify the fact that she was um, eligible to travel. Um, just to give you a little bit of a map here, um, my area of, of focus or the focus of inquiry is in the south of Spain, right? So you see Sevilla there, that then, um, it, which is where the House of Trade is. But I have expanded my, you know, reach to Malaga, to um, Granada, and, and, and to Cadiz, right, which is where ships go through to the Americas. This is where they leave. But, you know, think about how close we are to the, the Maghreb, right, to the north of Africa. Think about, we're much closer to, um, to Africa than we are to Madrid, right? And so, you know, this is definitely reflected in the very, very multicultural, what I am also calling a sort of a multicultural cosmopolitan um, uh, flair of what is Andalusia at the time of uh, 1492, because that is my date of departure. And of course, you know, here is, for instance, uh, uh, the Alcázar of, of Sevilla, but it is a Moorish castle, right? This is in the, the heart of Christian Europe, but this is uh, a Moorish castle. This is uh, the Alhambra, um, you know, and the famous gardens of the, the Generalife. And if, you know, this is at the same time that Columbus is sailing the ocean blue in 1492, we are also witnessing the fall of Granada and the fall of the Nazareth um, empire, uh, Muslim empire taken over by the Catholic kings. So I am situating, you know, that project, my project in this um, larger prehistory. Now, at the same time, I'm someone who has always studied gender and domesticity. And when I see, you know, gleaming pa uh, palaces and beautiful gardens, I know that there is labor that's involved. Um, it, no, dine, you know, no, <laughs> No king is going to come polish that silver for himself or polish the marble for himself. And so I always think about the labor relations that uh, this sort of opulence uh, depends on. 
And so my project really is about, you know, sort of tracing Afro-Liberians. Who are they? Who were they? Uh, you know, before they get to the Americas. And of course, one of the fun parts of this project has been to look at um, visual culture, because it turns out that Black Iberians or Black people in Iberia or, or Morisco people in Iberia or Jewish uh, converso people in Iberia are omnipresent, right? And so this is um, a, picture, uh, a portrait that is painted by Diego de Velasco, you know, iconic um, uh, uh, painter, a Spanish painter. And this is his amanuensis, a guy named Juan de Pareja. And he eventually frees um, Juan de Pareja. But there is, you know, new evidence coming out of art history that a lot of the paintings that we have attributed to Velázquez were actually done by um, Juan de Pareja. And um, so that's been a kind of a fun part of this project is to really look. And so it turns out that um, Black people are visually uh, represented in, in, you know, prolific ways, but mostly in both domestic and courtly settings. Um, so this is another very famous uh, painting by Velázquez, and it's called uh, Kitchen Made in Maus. And I, you know, when I immediately when I saw this, I was like, I know, I know this composition, right? I'm not an art historian, but to me, this is Augustina, right? This is her. Um, this is who she is. This is her portrayal. So in terms of Black people or Afro-Iberians in the uh, golden age, or I mean, that term is, is, is fraught, but in terms of, uh, you know, how pe Black people were represented, they were either represented in a domestic sphere or in a courtly sphere, right? The, the, the opulence of, of court society. And I love this. This is going to be the uh, cover of my book um, because of the detail and because of the fact that I think that this is a portrayal of someone like Augustina, who you know is the subject of my uh, of my work. And of course, um, art historians are not necessarily that interested in her life, but I am. And so where I'm going to go to find out, you know, about her is I'm going to go to the archive. Um, but before I take you to the archive uh, today, I, just, uh, you know, a couple of basics. Like, so the question is that you might all be asking, you know, am I talking about two people? Am I talking about 500 people? Am I talking, you know, what, what are the numbers, right? The numbers game. So who were the Black Iberians in early modern Sevilla? before 1492, right? Before the world opens up for navigation and commerce. And I've shown you two pictor, pictorial uh, representations, but, um, you know, so there are Berbers from uh, the Maghreb of whom uh, Juan de Pareja seems to be one. One is Moriscos who are Muslims coming up from the Maghreb who were in in Granada and after the fall of, of Granada are living under Catholic rule. The other is uh, free black people like um, Agustina who earned or won their freedom. And then the, the, the fourth category by 1492, you have about five decades of people coming from Sub-Saharan Africa as part of the 
transatlantic slave trade living on the peninsula. So now I'm going to uh, switch focus a little bit and then go to, um, you know, think about 1492. Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I, I come into Agostina's story through this, this, this license, right? And so one question would be, well, why did Iberian immigrants need licenses to go to the Americas, right? The Americas are open for business, ships are leaving. Um, and the better question is, um, is how do early modern um, empires regulate movement and settlement and migration? And following from this, what are the mechanisms of surveillance that preceded the discovery and settlement of the Americas? So someone like Agustina, a free black woman who is identified in the record as a swarthy woman in her thirties with two misaligned upper teeth um, is, was you know, definitely one of the people who would have been surveilled right, by the pre 1492 um, uh, you know, methods of surveillance. But it turns out that um, early modern Europe has everyone surveilled, you know, pilgrims and anybody who is itinerant, right? Um, is subject to this sort of surveillance uh, mechanism because this is the time, right? When you when you get to uh, 1492, this is the time that community-based systems of recognition and 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 able you know able to place people um, abilities to place people have broken down, right? And so you know to just give a very trite example, for instance, from Shakespeare. You know, when, when, um, so like Antonio, right, the merchant of Venice, when he's in Venice and he's like sending Bassanio on or, you know, people to sort of check on his affairs, like they are going, they, they don't just show up, you know, and, and it, it, they're going, you know, with documents and seals that um, authorize them being there, right, and the purpose of their visit. And, um, you know, authorizes their 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 ability to be in that place, and so you look at these terrestrial ways of controlling the uh, flows of people and the identities of people, and then you put that onto maritime travel, right? And so um, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at ship manifests, right? So on the left or my left, I don't know how you're seeing it, but on the left is, uh, these are the manifests that um, go into, you know, from the house of trade, right? Um, terrible uh, paleography. I've lost, you know, at least three grades of vision just trying to figure this out. But um, the middle um, is a slave ship uh, register, and the third to the right is a more modern register. I think for um, for the British Atlantic. Um, in 1900, the manifests were uh, were compiled by um, um, two scholars, two Spanish scholars. And uh, this is sort of what they look like, right? Um, and I'm just gonna read a little bit of that, what that is. So entry number 2796, who's probably the passenger, uh, 2796, her name is um, Elvira Martin y Asencia. Suija, her, her daughter, 
Negras de Guinea. So this is a shorthand way of saying that these are Black women from the sub-Saharan um, continent, African continent. Al Peru, so they're going to Peru, como horas, as free Black women, the 10th of October. It's very cryptic uh, entry, right? And so, um, but you know, it, it, it just, you know, it sort of tells us something, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot. It, it tells me a couple of things. But you know, indentured uh, records, right, also tell you the terms of travel and the identity of the bearer. This is um, a document uh, that's more common in the uh, the English context of uh, early America. But you know that tells you that the, there's a a contract, so to speak, and what the what the terms of travel are, and so you know I've been spending a lot of time thinking about these licenses, and and uh, I've been you know thinking through. There's this this guy Valentin Grobner who who wrote a book, and it's called Who Are You, <clears throat> and he says um, identity papers constitute our personal history. The identity papers that we carry around in our pockets are thoroughly medieval. By contrast, the concept of nationality, which we associate quite naturally without a passport, is more recent. The old instrument of the passport and the new instrument of nationality become closely linked in the 19th century. So since I'm going way back before the 19th century, um, I was, you know, sort of curious about that and what were the early modern um, ideas of what I'm sort of talking about the politics of, of, of local mobility or, or, or mobility, right? Um, because the real moniker or, or icon of the modern state is, or the modern bureaucratic state, is this ability to issue identity papers, right? To reassure everyone that the bearer is who the bearer says, uh, they are, that the, the person who's issuing or the body who's issuing that document has that authority, that sovereign authority, and that there are, you know, that these things are, are, are actually fixed. And of, of course, in the context of maritime travel in the early modern world, this is a, a complete illusion, right? Um, but, but it gives rise to the question is why spend so much time trying to make sure that Ausina is who she is. She's hauled in front of the court. You know, somebody makes sure that she is a woman who's swarthy and negra atesada with, um, with, you know, misaligned front teeth and, um, and, and that sort of thing. Now, this is also profoundly classed because if she were a noble woman, um, so Catalina de Guzman, who, in whose service she is being, um, uh, she, in, in whose service she is, is, is employed, does not have to give that level of uh, personal scrutiny. But, um, you know, and here's, you know, I apologize to Adam Norman, he's just some random white guy that I pulled off the, the, the internet. But, but I mean, this is a modern passport, right? So it is very interesting that the licenses, right, tell us the same thing over and over again. Identity documents do have very similar uh, functions. They tell us the name, the age, the nationality. Sometimes the visa will tell us the purpose of the visit, the destination. 
and most importantly, the sovereign authority that imbues, you know, this document with some uh, solemnity and uh, legitimacy, right? And that the other sovereign is going to accept that and grant the, 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 the passage to the bearer uh, for a limited duration. So uh, I'm just gonna go back to my, um, to my uh, entries. So here is entry number 2776, and this is for Isabel del, del, Melga, del Melgar, and she's a natural of Sevilla. So she comes from Sevilla. She's a soltera, so she's a single woman. And she is the daughter of Juan Ruiz Asturiano and Francisca Negra, right? So Francisca actually doesn't have any more, uh, any more um, modifiers than the fact that she is a black woman named um, Francisca. So we don't know whether they were married, whether she, we just, we just know that, oh, and this is, and then uh, she's going to Tierra Firme, which is today's Panama on the 5th of October. Um, another one, Jerónima uh, Negra, she's just a black woman, al Peru, going to Peru. Donde esta su marido, where her husband is on the 17th. And the third one, um, and you know, there are many of these. I'm just, I'm just giving you three um, selected ones. Ana de Argamanza, Negra, Natural de Sevilla. So she's from Sevilla. Soltera, single woman. Uh, hija de Antonio and um, de Isabel de Morales, who are both black. And she's also going to uh, Tierra Firme. She's also going to Panama. So, you know, like, what do I take from that? I mean, I could, there's just like all the single ladies, they're going to, you know, it's like they are going to, 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 to Tierra Firme. You know, it's like, what's up with that? Um, so there, these are ways in which I am sort of thinking through not just the license, but the biographies of the people who are going. I'm charting their itineraries. Um, and I'm really trying to take um, uh, you know, this approach of microhistory looking at these mobile individuals to tell the story of, uh, of European migration, which is very much um, underrepresented in the literature. And, you know, here's a slide, which is going to take everyone by, uh, by surprise. But really what is happening is that in this whole vortex of, of information, right, biographical information, ship manifests, all of these things, um, I may never be able to chart, you know, a biography from womb to tomb of someone like Anna, like, I don't know what her story is. I know that I'm getting very, very minimal biographical evidence about her and her motivations for travel and why, you know, how, what age she is and why she decides to go and why the um, Casa decides to grant her her, um, her license. But I might be able to sort of extract and draw out, if not a full picture, of Anna, I might be able to extract and draw out a composite, right? That she is not just an entry in this um, undifferentiated lot, but she is someone who I can um, write into in a, in a kind of a micro history and global history of migration as to why 
it is that she moved, what experiences she might have had, like why is it that she decided that she wanted to go to Panama at this time. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. That's my project. And I welcome your, you know, your feedback. Thanks so much, Michelle. At this point, I just want to remind everybody that if they have any questions for Michelle about the project, please use the chat function and I will share those questions with Michelle. Michelle, could you stop sharing your screen so we can see who's with us? There you go. Perfect. And um, so feel free to use the chat function. I'll start off. Can you say a little bit more, Michelle, about this idea that you ended up with about the composite history? Uh, so what, what do you mean exactly by composite history? And, and can you say a little bit more about how you construct or reconstruct such a composite? So um, thanks, Paul. I, I do realize that that is a very risky slide uh, to put in, but really what I'm trying to do is to um, have some idea that I might never be able to get the full story of these people. I mean, I am drawn to mysteries. I'm drawn to detective novels. I am really, really, this is, this is like where I am good at, you know, reconstructing histories and I can, but, you know, sometimes you, the, you also have to realize that, you know, the, if people don't live, leave an archival print, and these are not people who are going to leave heavy archival prints in the record, um, sometimes they show up in you know tragic circumstances right they are shipwrecked so they never make it to the americas and there's good records for that tragic outcome um but if they just you know go to tierra firme and they live their life and they're fine i might not see them right and so i have to have a sort of a composite history of them that will get me to the kind of the micro history that I'm most drawn to, but also to establish certain patterns and to, you know, look at them over, you know, what is actually happening? What is, what are the push factors? Because this is an immigration story. What are the push factors and what are the pull factors? And so that is the composite, right? Um, that I'm thinking through. The next question is about your historical sources. The sources that you were showing us of or from Spain. The questioner is wondering, are there also sources on the other side of the of the uh, trip? Uh, are there sources in Panama or in the New World that you can draw on? Yes, absolutely. And so um, there's, you know, one of one of the the, the the ideas behind the project is a truly global history, right? So um, I would look at the issuing um, documents in Spain. And then the fact is that there is so much uh, that could go wrong and there's tremendous amounts of, 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 of fraud and slippage, right? Which I am so excited about. Um, but, uh, you know, so documents that are purposed for one, um, you know, issued for one purpose can be repurposed along the way, uh, especially when you get into the 16th century Caribbean, where P there is a real emphasis on mobility. Now, I have spent, you know, much time in the 
uh, the the sort of the research leading up to this book, being very focused on Lima, Cartagena. So I know those records really well. And I know that if I find uh, where the weak link for me is that I've never worked with the Spanish records. So I know that I can find them if they survive when um, they get to the new world, right? Because thank God for this, but the, the, the Spaniards and the Catholics, they really, really, you know, if you, I don't know, if you blow your nose and you have a Kleenex, there is a copy of that Kleenex and they know exactly when you blew your, when you <laughs> blew your nose. So, I mean, it's a lot to go through, but um, it will, it, it certainly is, um, is, it's feasible. Now I'm not going, I'm not doing uh, work in sites that I don't know. So I'm not going to like Rio de la Plata. I'm not doing Brazil. Um, I'm just uh, focusing on sites that I know. So the next question is from Sharon Luke. Uh, uh, Michelle, I love this project. Going back to your interest in family and kinship, Sharon was also interested in the presence of kin in the archive that could extend the inquiry not only to establish composite of Anna or uh, other uh, uh, free black uh, immigrants. Uh, are you pursuing that as well? The parents, Antonio and Isabel, and Sharon's thinking the significance of this specifically in relation to thinking again about the implications of the family versus individual history for revisioning global history. Absolutely. Thanks, Sharon. I mean, definitely this is, you know, as, as soon as I get the data, this is a both a gendered project and a, a, a project of how um, empire through immigration of families is domesticated, right? And so um, in terms of whether or not Agostina has um, you know, kin or whether, you know, the, 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 the other women who, who identify themselves as uh, single women are able to get that license. That is highly suspicious to me because single women do not get licenses from the House of Trade. So they must have alleged in their broader um, presentation, uh, the evidence of male kin who were in the Americas already whom they were going to join, right? So this is very much a family project. This is very much, um, you know, a typical immigration story. Why do people move, right? They move not just because of, and I am not talking about forced movement, right? I'm not talking about the slave trade, but why do people move, go somewhere, Sometimes, and, and I'm seeing a lot in the record of people who go back to the, pen, the peninsula, right? Because that's where they have family. So for me, it's, this is a, a kind of a unique way of writing global history, kind of peering through the keyholes of these very, very mobile people to think about empire, to think about commerce, but to also think about gender and affect, right? Like how, how, how strong, are, are, are these ties um, that we find, right? Um, and this is not necessarily uh, related to your point, but I definitely wanted to, to, to include it. You know, the history of Black women in the Americas is generally a story of women who are in ports, right? They are the tavern owners, they're the brothel owners, they're the, the, the ones who are like managing 
this um, this uh, this industry, right? But I'm interested in um, Agustina as someone who's making the trip back and forth, and what that might mean for a kind of a, a an economy of migration and labor. But I do think it's a family story, and I'm, I'm glad for your your I'm grateful for your comment, your question. Uh, Sharon also uh, wants to emphasize uh, that uh, this project is so extraordinary because it goes back so far in time that most of this kind of work starts in the 16th century. Would you say a little bit more about why it was important to go back so far and also some of the challenges that going back so far have posed for you? Um, so going back so far was... I kind of, you know, I was really, really um, someone who had been very interested in the 17th century, and that was my uh, first book. Um, and I kept on going further back. So I decided on the 16th century because this is really the opening up of the Americas, right? And it's also a very, very interesting time on the peninsula um, in terms of, of Black mobility. The real challenge for me, and it's not at all sexy, the real challenge for me is the paleography, right? The, the, the paleography is very different. Um, the writing, the, you know, and sort of just not knowing in the same way that I know the Latin American scene so well, you know, whose hand is the, not the notary? Who's doing what? So for me, it's really establishing again, a research site, like figuring out professional networks, figuring out who, you know, is writing the wills, who's writing the freedom contracts, who's writing the letters, who's, so, so that is a kind of reconnaissance work that has been certainly challenged by COVID because I haven't been able to go and these are not um, collections online. But, um, but for me, it gives me a much better picture of figuring out what the 17th century looked like when I look at the 16th century, right? So my first book was really, really in one deep, deep immersion in one space. And now I'm thinking about what that looks like in a global context. And I'm excited about it. So the next question is from Kristen Bell. Uh, thanks for the talk and broadening the narrative of immigration. Kristen's curious about how the story of immigration of Black people from the Iberian Peninsula compares to the history of immigration of Black people from France and other parts of Europe. Um, Kristen, do you have a century? She's, she's not sharing her century. <laughs> Well, I think that, um, and I don't know if Leah's on the call. <laughs> She's like, I can't unmute. Okay, so I'm thinking, um, let me just then take the, the, the softer, um, um, you know, uh, answer. I think that when a lot of people think about France, uh, they think about the, <laughs> okay, dealer's choice. Well, a, a lot of people think about the 18th century, right? They think because th this is when France sort of comes into its own, it's um, wedged between a, uh, you know, the 19th century, which is really the British century, and the 17th, 16th and 17th, which are um, uh, Iberian and Dutch. 
Um, when the French come into it, they come into um, they they come into a, a, a series of, of of crises, right? So there's like Saint Domingue, and there's this, and there's that. Um, but there is a lot of really interesting work, I think, that is you know coming out about Black Europe that is French in uh, origin. So I'm thinking about Sue Peabody's work. I'm thinking about people who are looking at Nantes, who are looking at Marseille, who are looking at, um, you know, not just like Haiti and um, New Orleans and, uh, you know, different French sites, but they are, um, they, you know, they're, they're looking at um, a world in motion. And that has made my work easier. I'm just doing a different century. Right, and I'm doing a different imperial context, um, and I'm really not looking at forced uh, labor in the same way that a lot of people who are looking at the French context look at slavery. So the next question is, in fact, from Leah Middlebrook. Um, building from your answers to Sharon's questions, Leah's heard you speak about caregivers and retainers as they travel back and forth in the retinue of wealthy men and women crossing from Spain to the Americas and back. Can you say a few words about that dimension of the project? Sure, so that's the, the before the colon, which is the bound biographies. And when I say that I love detective work, I mean, I love detective work when there's clues, right? And it really is these grand, uh, the, the, the great man narratives, right? The biographies of the recogedor, you know, the, the like corregidores and the, the, like the, the, the people who are in service of the crown who leave these big uh, biographical records, right? And they travel with a lot of retainers. So Doña Catalina de Guzman is actually, she's probably just a middling uh, aristocrat, right? She's seeking to join her husband with, you know, her children and their children's children. So she's going, you know, as a part of a multi-generational family. And it seems like she's taking, you know, three or four uh, retainers, one of whom is Agustina. But where you really find a fulsome record is of, you know, people who are going as viceroys and governors and, um, and you know, treasurers and judges. And so they leave because of the prominence of their position. They're able to bring lots and lots of retainers, but they also leave lots more, um, lots more uh, biographical details. So I am able to approximate um, lots more from those kinds of records and bring it into the frame of domesticity and bring it into the frame of household migration. Because, you know, in that point, the, the inquiry is, well, what constitutes a household, right? Is the household the person who is gonna take care of your children or is the household, you know, limited to your blood kin? And Iberian um, uh, households, especially noble ones are not, um, are not premised on, on 
you know, they have a lot of uh, networks of dependents, right? Criadas, allegados, and um, dependents. So that's what I'm trying to tell in my story. So the next question is from Sangeeta Gopal. She asks, uh, first, this is such a rich and generative project. What existing historiographies of early modern world and its circulatory logics have been most productive for and challenging to your research framework? Um, thank you, Sangeeta. I didn't know you were coming. I'm so flattered. Um, so certainly um, I have been looking a lot at the world in, uh, in motion, right? So not just, I'm not just thinking about centuries, but I'm thinking about historians like Alison Gaines, who really works on um, she, she takes one year of the registers of people who left um, the British ports and come to the United States. So she takes like 4,300 uh, 4, and odd uh, people who, and then she traces them, right, in one year, 1635, uh, in order to think about how the, the American colonies were peopled. I also think about people like, you know, um, Runissa Mawani's work where she looks at the life of a ship and how travel on the ship is also uh, the ship as method. Um, it, for me, it's very interesting to think about as, you know, somebody like Augustina is going back and forth, like, where is her life? She's not terrestrial, right? She's actually maritime. And a lot of uh, the work that I think we do in migration or immigration studies is very much this idea that people are going from there to here or here to there. And, you know, what if it's the journey that is, um, the, the, the migration. So I, I draw that um, both the ship as method and um, the, the, the aqueous territory of maritime travel as, um, as important. Um, certainly, you know, thinking through the Portuguese and the Dutch. I mean, I have become very interested in ways in which empires incentivize people to move. I had, I sort of went into this project thinking that people wanted to move because they wanted to go get, you know, the riches and pillage and, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and but it's a very basic question. Not everybody wanted to move. And so short of forced migration, which is part of the slave trade or galley labor, right, which is um, prison labor that you, of course, send, uh, which is forced. You know, it's not clear to me that people um, felt that they were as uh, motivated to move um, as they were, right? So I'm trying to kind of work out, um, you know, the broad incentives. And um, I don't know if I have time for this, uh, Paul. I don't know how many more uh, questions you have in your queue. Um, do I have time to just one anecdote? Sure, sure, sure. So the Portuguese, I've been fascinated with the Portuguese. So the Portuguese actually um, have this thing where, of course, they have forced labor, right, in, you know, going to Mozambique, going to Benguela, going all this. So that's their galley labor. But they also employ orphans, right? And they give these orphans dowries, um, state dowries, that then kind of both make them marriageable 
and then make them marriageable. So they send them off to Goa and they send them off to, you know, these other places. They take them out very, very early from, uh, and these are high-born uh, royal orphans, right? And so they give them a dowry and they say, okay, you go off to Goa and you have three years to get married. And otherwise, if you don't get the, if you don't get married, you sort of become Cinderella, right? Your, your carriage becomes a pumpkin. And so they, um, so I thought that that was actually very interesting. You know, like, what is it? It's so frighteningly efficient, right? Here you have domesticity, uh, uh, sexuality, heteronormativity, but it's being state, you know, state uh, incentivized, right? Because they're desperate to get these Portuguese men married to Portuguese women, because these Portuguese men are, of course, consorting with local Goan elite women, right? And their emperors like going to shit, right? So they basically are like, okay, we'll get, you know, we'll we'll send our orphan uh girls with dowries and give them a shelf life of three years. So that's tremendously uh, uh, interesting and creative, right? And that's the Portuguese. The Dutch are doing very similar things. And this suggests to me that um, colonies are, are, are not, you know, after the initial sort of uh, decade or, or so of depredation of, um, of violence when it comes to the fact that you have to start a colony and people a colony and you know indoctrinate a colony it it, it takes a while to get started it's like a good party right like not it, it is not it's not now it, it, it's 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 not um immediate right um and so uh that's kind of where i'm uh looking at so indian ocean um you know Leah's, uh idea about the French. The French kind of come into this later and they have the, the benefit of looking at what other people do. But of course, the French are very um, French about things and they probably think that they know everything themselves. So they, but, but I'm thinking, you know, big uh, uh, empires, uh, oceanic empires like that. So this question concerns your interest in the mechanisms of surveillance that were used uh, before the settlement of, of, of the Americas, the, before the widespread settlement of the Americas by the Europeans. And it has to do with the relationship in your mind between these mechanisms of surveillance and the mobility of Black people. So on the one hand, it seems as if these mechanisms of um, surveillance are regulatory uh, mm -hmm. tools uh, in relation to the mobility of Black people. But on the other hand, it seems as if they facilitate that movement. Could you say a little bit more about the relationship between the movement or agency of, of free Black people and these mechanisms of surveillance that you're interested in? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know who said it, but it's wonderful. And I feel like I should um, frame uh, the idea around this. I, I the 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 institution that comes to mind immediately is the Inquisition, right? Because of course, you know, by the 1570s, um, after church and crown have uh, been established, the next major institution that comes from the peninsula is the Inquisition. And this is, you know, an idea that you need people um, I do think, um, just going back to the first question or the first part of the question, I do think that free black people are never free. 
in a in a in in this context. It is always qualified. It is always conditional. It is very slippery, and so the mechanisms of surveillance are just incorporated into their everyday movement. Right? It's like today's undocumented people. They will definitely have ways of um, proving, you know, either their status or their ability to be there or or, or something else. Um, and so I think that that is very much in part of the geography of a free black person, knowing that they are constantly going to be surveilled and can be hauled off at any minute to the inquisition as a way of testing both their faith and their um, fealty to the crown. So that uh, tempers their movement. So they are of course mobile, but they're mobile within constrained geographies, right? And this is not just in Spain, it's throughout the Americas, it's throughout any place in which there are, you know, labor regimes that can um, authorize and extract the labor, but then penalize the labor for being outside, right? And I'm thinking, of course, vagrancy, I'm thinking about, um, but you know, not just vagrancy, right? Like pilgrims, uh, not pilgrims, um, the people, the, the, you know, uh, penitents, right? It just turns out that the 13th century, uh, 14th century Europeans are terribly perturbed about penitents because they're running around, you know, professing all kinds of, of potentially heretic, um, uh, uh, you know, beliefs and spreading this because that's the whole point about penitence and, you know, people is that they're always on, they're, they're, they're never stable. So I do think that the, um, the early modern world, there, there's a lot of anxiety about movement, recognizing that people are moving, they are moving, right? And then when it becomes uh, uh, maritime, right? This is the largest registration effort that takes place, you know, in the early modern world, figuring out how people are moving from one place to another on a ship and what happens when they get there. Um, I think this is uh, profoundly dangerous. And that's why you see this real effort at licensing, at making sure that the, you know, the bearer is the bearer who they say they are. And, 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 um, the anxiety about fraud. And I know I don't have time to talk about fraud, but that's fine. I'll talk about it the next time, Paul. So uh, I just wanna give you a follow-up from Sangeeta. Um, uh, she's praising the idea of em empire incentivizing as a fascinating concept. And uh, she points out that Persians were flocking to a Mughal empire unforced to party and make fortunes in the 15th and 16th centuries. And I'm just wondering if you might say a little bit more about this idea of empire incentivizing uh, behaviors that might in fact run contrary to the interests of the empire. Well, I don't know about the wacky Persians. I, <laughs> I think the wacky Persians are, I mean, the Persians who I know who are part of the Mughal empire are um, legal professionals, right? This is, that was their metier. Um, you know, as, as I was saying, Paul, the idea of the iconicity of the modern administrative state is this ability to control movement and to control all the outcomes and to predict the outcomes. But, and I don't just say that this is an early modern um, uh, uh, 
phenomenon. You can't predict what it is that people are going to do, right? You can um, imagine that there are incentives that would, um, so I will send up, you know, Portuguese orphan with a dowry and imagine that some man is going to think that it's preferable to marry her than to intermarry with the local uh, Goan elite. But you don't have any guarantee of that, right? And so, um, and so you, you see just, just hand-wringing, right? You see, you know, why is it that people aren't responding to, you know, the, the kind of incentives that they're supposed to? Why aren't they acting like good Catholics? Why is it that they're, you know, cross-dressing and going native and doing all of these kinds of things? Um, and and it's, it's sort of to the chagrin of the bureaucrat, which I love to see in the record because, you know, they're just railing against people exercising agency and irrationality um, you know, uh, uh, against what they, they uh, against people's better judgment, right? Or the the better judgment of the crown and, and church. So, um, yeah, that's that's that. So, Michelle, we've come to the end of our hour, and I see now that we don't have any more questions in the chat. I want to thank you so much for sharing this a completely fascinating project and. Um, all the best of luck to you on, on this, uh, the research. It's just such a fascinating effort that you're undertaking. Um, it's just been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody. And um, thank you for your questions. And, you know, definitely reach out to me via email or whatever. We're still in this remote format, but um, I welcome any uh, questions or comments. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for Michelle McKinley's Work in Progress Talk. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.